Good morning. I'm Jordan, one of the pastors here, and um, I am humbled, as always, to share the Word of God. And I was just so grateful for your presence and your voice this morning as I was up here listening to the surround sound of the saints of God worshiping, just so encouraging. So thank you for being here and lending your voice. Um, This morning, I'm continuing on in week two of our series, Union with Christ, Knowing and Enjoying God. Last week, I began by introducing Union with Christ as the Samwise Gamgee of of the salvation story, uh, the real hero, right? Lisa, can I get an amen? (laughs) Um, If you have any Lord of the Rings questions, Lisa is actually a larger Lord of the Rings nerd than I am. Um, This is one of the most important and neglected themes of the Bible, is what I said. Um, It lies at the heart of all that we do as a church. I exhorted us that a deeply apprehended and lived theology of union with Christ is going to be so necessary um, in the years ahead um, for the church to be the church. It's the antidote to several spiritual snake bites. I said the gap between our heads and our hearts, moral therapeutic deism, and political idolatry. So if you didn't catch that sermon, it's online. Um, If you want to catch up with the series, I'd refer you to that. It is nearly impossible to underestimate the importance of this teaching. Um, not my teaching, the Bible's teaching, union with Christ. It is cataclysmic. It is landscape shaping. Um, It it will change everything. For some of you, it may actually give you the desire in your heart to actually give your heart to Christ fully for the first time. Others of you who have already done that, it may just bring your life into 4K ultra high definition clarity. Or I I just the other day was in Best Buy and was standing in front of a now 8K, um, 75-inch screen, just like basking in the glory. I think I was getting a tan. Um, So it may do that for your spiritual life, just bringing it to such clarity. It is the most important doctrine that you've never heard of for some of you. This week, the goal is simple. I just want to ask and answer one question. What is it? What is union with Christ? Um, Two quick comments. Rather than reference these every time, I I just want you to know that I'm really drawing heavily on this book, Union with Christ, right here um, by Rankin Wilborn. Really good. This is just popular level. A lot of good illustrations and analogies. Also, J. Todd Billings, Union with Christ, a little more academic. Excellent book. And then I didn't list this up here, but this is by my seminary professor, Dr. Fairbairn. And this is just an amazing kind of worldview shaping, worldview changing. What is salvation? It's life in the Trinity. I would refer you to this. This is really a look at the early church fathers. So those are three books I'm drawing on heavily throughout, and rather than tell you every time, just know that. So what is union with Christ? The first thing I want to say is that union with Christ is a mystery. It's a mystery. And explaining a mystery is a bit like explaining a joke. When you explain the mystery, you kill it right? When you explain the joke, you kill it. So here's John Calvin, one of the greatest theological minds of our world that's ever known, union with Christ. This is what he says about it. For my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery. I am not ashamed to acknowledge at once my ignorance and my admiration. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. Calvin is saying that the biblical teaching on union with Christ is not an intellectual fact that we put in our pockets and walk around with. Rather, it is a, it's a mystery. It is a key to open a door into a whole new enchanted reality. It is like the wardrobe in Lewis's Narnia. You know, we open and we go through the wardrobe and we go into this whole new magical land, this one without white witches and such, but nevertheless, we go into a whole new world and explore. That's union with Christ. 
That is why the New Testament authors, especially Paul, often depend on metaphor in explaining what it is. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Union with Christ is like union between parts of a body, like between the head and the hands. 1 Corinthians 3, union with Christ is said to make us living stones in a, in a living temple that God is building. Ephesians 4, union with Christ is compared to new clothes that we put on that cover us. Most commonly, union with Christ is said to be like the bond of marital union. As in Ephesians 5, where it is written, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. You are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. This one flesh union between wife and husband is a metaphor for the union between Christ and his people. In Tim Keller's words, the ecstasy and joy of sex is supposed to be a foretaste of the complete ecstasy and joy of total union with Christ. The moment we see Christ face to face, we will be naked, yet so delighted in our nakedness that we will be unashamed. The Lord God will look at us through Jesus and say, I love you. Great sex is a parable of the gospel. To be utterly accepted in spite of our sin, to be known all the way down to the bottom as we pray every morning, the Lord sees all hearts, they're all open, to be fully known and fully loved and embraced. Now, if this talk makes you blush a little bit, I remind you that, as one pastor puts it, the first sexual thought in the universe was God's, not man's. And for the sake of our singles, I want to add this. Celibacy itself is a prophetic sign, a fully human, fully dignified, beautiful way of embodying the promise that earthly sexual union is not ultimate, as we said, it is a signpost to what is ultimate. That is why Jesus plainly teaches in Matthew twenty-two thirty, that in the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. No marriage in the new creation. Is this depressing? No. I think you will still deeply know and love your spouse, but in terms of the covenantal union between husband and wife, which isn't just one flesh sexually, it's actually meant to be a signpost showing that we are to serve and love and commit through thick and thin till death do us part for the sake of love and intimacy. But this is a signpost pointing to the ultimate union with Christ. Now, celibacy is just testifying that this is not ultimate. The one flesh sexual union is pointing to what is ultimate. Okay, so the metaphors. We've got, we've got, uh, um, we've got living stones. We've got clothes. We've got um, sexual union. These are all signposts. And that's why, you know, the metaphor is not like the metaphor between a business partner and another business partner who agree in principle on something. The metaphor is not like a teacher and a student who share an idea together. It is a deeper union. These metaphors are showing us it's like cells in a functioning body, okay? Or it's like husband, it's like living branches on a living vine. The point is, is that this, this union with Christ pushes the envelope to maybe even pass what we're comfortable imagining, the most intimate earthly unions is but a foretaste. It's but a signpost. So there's mystery here, profound mystery. In moderns, we like mystery, at least in fiction. Some of us might like to read mystery, um, mystery books, um, Sherlock Holmes, all that. But in fact, 
you know, when it comes to ideas about reality, we want to be able to put them under a microscope and dissect them and summarize them in 140 characters. Union with Christ is an enchanted reality, and maybe that's why it doesn't get the attention it deserves. We have to be careful in trying to answer the question, what is it, not to try to dissect it so much that we remove this enchanting mystery. Union with Christ does not invite us to master a method. It invites us to live and behold a mystery. That's the first point. Never going to fully understand it. So we've begun to explore the oceanic mystery by way of metaphor, and so let's now begin to wade a little bit into that ocean and see if we can offer a simple definition. Here it is. Union with Christ means you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Our union with Christ, or Christ with us, is explicitly spoken of or referenced over 200 times in the New Testament. It's ubiquitous. Here's a smattering of some of the more well-known references. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 6.4, we were buried with Christ by baptism and death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be saved? That you pray a prayer and that you get forgiven and then you sit back and relax and enjoy the life insurance? Now to be saved is to have Christ live in you. It's to have Christ in you. That's salvation. Christ in you, you in Christ. Paul says to become a Christian is to be crucified with Christ, is to be buried with Christ, is to be raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And it's fascinating that in each of these scriptures, Paul invents a new word. He invents a new word because he's groping after the mystery here. What he does is he adds the Greek prefix sun, which means with, to each of these verbs, crucified with, buried with, raised with, seated with, didn't exist before Paul made it up. We see this in our own words, synchronize which means to place actions or events beside one another, with one another. Or in our words, synthesize, which means to place ideas with one another. Your life is synthesized with Christ's. Your life is synchronized with Christ's. To be a Christian is not just to believe things about God or the Bible. It is the with Christ life, nothing less. So union happens through faith in Christ, and it is functionally accomplished when the Spirit indwells us. That's the Spirit of Christ who comes to dwell in us. And from that point on, in the words of Colossians, your life is hid with Christ in God. Okay, so a few questions may be coming up. We've begun saying union with Christ is a mystery. We've offered a little bit of a definition. Now the remainder of the sermon is going to clarify what union with Christ is by asking and answering, trying to, three questions. What does a union with Christ do to me, my individuality? What does a union with Christ do to my humanity? And what does a union with Christ do to my heart? What does a union with Christ do to my individuality? In a word, it at once humbles it and dignifies it. Humbles it because, as Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. This means that we are not the heroes of our own stories. We are displaced from the center of our own lives, and we no longer get to define our sense of self entirely around our own impulses and our own ideas. Now, when someone asks you, this may be especially prescient for our, our younger folks and our high schoolers, when someone asks you, what do you think about 
immigration or sexuality or critical race theory or maybe for some of us the debt ceiling or whatever it is, you no longer get to just shoot from the hip and just be like, I think this. Um, you, get to, you have to take a moment and you realize I am crucified with Christ. I'm buried with him and raised with him and seated with him. My life is hid with him. What does Christ think? What are his thoughts? And so you might say, hey, I tend to think about it this way. But as Jesus invites me to make his thoughts my thoughts, I'm being challenged to consider it this way. So it humbles our sense of of individuality, displacing us from the center of our own lives. To be in Christ is a bit like what it was for me to be on the same team in college as Kyle Halfpop. I played, what a great name. I just can't, I love that name. I don't know why. Anyways, I played soccer from the age of four all the way through Division Three in college. And on my college team, Kyle Halfpop was this remarkable player who could have played Division One and probably stood out at that level. But he played on my Division Three team for other reasons, maybe to, to be the standout player like nationally. My sophomore year, our team won 16 games and lost zero. Why? Kyle Halfpop, basically. Um, Now, the unfortunate thing for me was that I was, uh, Kyle and I played the same position, at least my preferred position, which is the number 10 role, the the offensive orchestrator of the game. And so, you know, if I wanted to play that position, I was on the bench. Um, Kyle was way better than me. So there I am on the bench, riding the bench, watching Kyle orchestrate the game and bring us to win after win after win after win. And occasionally I got put in at like the 70th minute, somebody got injured or something. Um, And eventually I said, fine, I give up. I'm going to play on the wing or up top. So I actually started to play. Um, But the point was this. Like David slaying of Goliath was David defeating Israel's enemies on behalf of Israel. Kyle's victories were also ultimately my victories. When he scored the winning goal, the entire team won. Kyle displaced me. But in him, so to speak, I won every single game that season. And that's the way salvation works. Not that you must be the best on the field. Not that you must score all the goals and do all the things. You are in Christ. Buried with him, raised with him, seated with him. He's done it. You are not the hero. What good news. You can breathe a big sigh of relief. It's not up to you. Relax. Relax into the finished work of Christ on your behalf because you are in him. He scored the winning goal, and so you win. So, union with Christ displaces our individuality, but it also dignifies it. Um, Most of us admit that there's something about us that is inherently flawed. Um, You know, we might tell a lie or get caught in a lie or get caught in doing something wrong, and so we say, well, I'm only human. I'm only human. But Jesus was fully human, you know, the perfect man. And the individual we all, I think, deep down wish we could be, full of compassion, able to heal the sick, a servant who washes the feet of his own disciples, um, crossing cultural boundaries, leaving a, a, a wake of justice and racial reconciliation everywhere he went, a man of utter power, but utter humility, of kindness and wisdom and strength and courage, who used his unparalleled power to do what? Not for selfish gain, but to bless the weak, to save the suffering. What a man. The cataclysmic truth is that this man, by his spirit, has united himself to you. Not erasing your individuality, but dignifying you, 
dignifying you as you gradually, as, as he gradually displaces your own self-destructive tendencies with his deeply dignifying life, making you more and more into the woman or man that he's made you to be, not causing us all to be like one person, but energizing us in the unique things he's gifted us to do, filling up our gifts with his purposes, making us the pastors and artists and nurses and executives and, and chaplains and musicians and mothers and roommates that we want really to be. So he displaces our, our individuality, even as he dignifies it. The second question you may be asking is this, what does union with Christ do to my humanity? What does it do to my humanity? If I am united with Christ, am I now divine? Am I like God? Now, if you haven't asked this question, you have not yet understood how deeply you are, in fact, united to Christ. The early Eastern fathers described our union with Christ as our deification, or becoming God. The answer is ultimately no. Union with Christ does not make you God. The, the, the creature-creator distinction needs to be maintained. Um, but it does mean that your humanity now participates in actual communion with God. What does that mean? Sandra Richter in the Epic of Eden says that for many people, the Bible and the Old Testament maybe especially is like a dysfunctional closet strewn with clothes and books and toys and shoes. Not like any of your closets. Um, You have no idea where to put things and you can't find things when you need them. And and we, we treat the Bible this way, don't we? We just find a verse we like. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And we pull it right out of Jeremiah. We have no idea what it actually means in context, but it's encouraging. Okay. But what if we actually had a way to organize the closet into a broader, ordered story? What is the Bible about? Here's Wilborn's attempt to give the Bible a three-word summary, and we heard it read in Genesis this morning. God asking the question, where are you? Where are you? This is the question he asks Adam and Eve in the garden, which begins the story. Created in communion for God, humanity breaks this communion. The rest of the Bible is the story of God's relentless pursuit of his people. Where are you? Come back to me. You've been cut off from me, and where are you? I want to restore communion with you. And the climax of this story is Christ. People are running from God and running from him, and communion is broken. But in the words of Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ is the eternal communion we are invited into, the the reason for our very existence, the whole point of salvation. As C.S. Lewis summarized beautifully, the divine life of Father and Son and Spirit is a drama. It is a dance. Each one of us must take their place in that dance. There is no other happiness for which you are made. Why, Why are you exist? What is the point of life? There is no other happiness for which you were made. Once a man or a woman is united to God, how could they not live forever? How is he or she to be united to God? It is impossible for humans to be taken into the... How is it possible for us to be taken into the triune life? The whole offer of Christianity is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Is that how you thought of what it means to be a Christian before? In Jonathan Edwards' words, the ultimate end of creation is union and love between God and his creatures. So back to the entire point of the Bible and the answer to this question, does union with Christ 
make humans become divine. No, but it does mean we become by grace what Christ already was by nature, children of God, in communion with God, our Father. Our humanity, your humanity, is now in the divine dance of love. The Spirit you have received brought about your adoption to sonship, says Romans 8, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit in us testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So that's how you organize the closet of the Bible. God creates us for communion. We break communion. God our Father asks, where are you? We run, but God pursues us in Christ. And then we are finally united to Christ by faith. We don't become God, but we become God's children. And we will eternally share the intimate fellowship from Him for which we were made. Salvation is not to be forgiven by God from afar. The gift card I talked about last week in the mail. Nor is salvation to become God, as some religions in the world teach. Salvation is to be united to Christ through the Holy Spirit, and therefore to participate in the divine life. You in Christ, Christ in you, Christ in the Father, you now share in the eternal sonship of Christ. In Jesus' own words in John 17, this is confirmed over and over again, which we read this morning. Okay, last question. Union with Christ, what does it do to our individuality, our humanity? Last, very briefly, what does it do to our hearts? What does this truth do to our hearts? It means that, in a word, we are not changed from the outside in, but we are changed from the inside out. We are much more like Spider-Man than we are Batman. Batman accessorizes. He accessorizes with religious, you know, in this analogy, he accessorizes with religious goods. Spider-Man is bitten by, is it radioactive? Radioactive spider? And his nature is entirely changed from the inside out. To become a Christian does not mean we accessorize with religion, that we put on forgiveness and these other good things, and so we, no, that's, that's not the point. We become bit by the radioactive spider. It changes our DNA from the inside out. Union with Christ teaches us that as we place our faith in Christ, we do not become better men and women, more religious, more moral. No, we become new women and men. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. God made him to be no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are in Christ. You are not the hero, but you are new. Well, this all sounds great, but, but how do I know, you ask? Well, it's not because of the strength of your faith or your emotions, so be careful with this one. Our faith is fickle, rising and falling like the tides. Our emotional experiences of these truths is also fickle. Some days we feel it, other days we don't. Sometimes we have seasons where we don't feel it at all. It's fine. Remember, union with Christ is not the same thing as our emotional experience of union with Christ. It is real, whether you feel it or not. Baptized persons who desire to trust Christ are united with Christ whether they feel it or not, regardless of whatever doubts or or whatever shame or whatever disillusionment or cynicism or depression or crippling anxiety, whatever questions, whatever desires, whatever diseases, whatever wounds, whatever grief you carry, the truest thing that can be said about you if you trust Christ is that your life is hid with Christ in God. And in Him you are the righteousness of God. Not because of what you've done, because of what he's done. He's the hero. 
Wilborn summarizes it this way, union with Christ means it is not the quality or degree of your faith that matters so much as being united to the object of your faith, the perfect Christ. It is the perfect Christ who saves us, not our imperfect faith or our imperfect obedience. Amen? Thank God for that. My parents have been married 45 years, and they are no more married today than they were 35, 45 years ago. And yet their experience of marriage has changed dramatically. You know, they know each other's thoughts almost before they say them. The, the tone of the first word almost tells the whole story. You in Christ, Christ in you, you are the righteousness of God. These truths are like the vows that Christ speaks to you. It's true, whether you know it or feel it or not, if you are a baptized follower of Christ. But over the years, it deepens and matures. And yes, you begin to feel it and experience it in deeper, more profound ways as you walk with Him. So listen, if you're not feeling it totally today, it's okay. You're on a journey, all right? The truest thing that can be said about you is your life is hid with Christ in God. You're the righteousness of Christ. And this morning as we come to the table, you're going to be reminded of that again. You're not the hero of the story. You come, you confess your sins, and you come with empty hands because you need the hero, right? You need to be united with Christ. And as you receive the bread and the body, remember that gift. Remember that it's about what he's done for you on your behalf because of his grace and because of his love. I began by saying union with Christ is not just an idea to be understood. It is a mystery to be lived. So I want to close with St. Augustine's simple exhortation. We have heard the facts. Let us seek the mystery. Lord, we do pray you would draw each of our hearts and our collective heart as a church, deeper into this mystery. That we would be people who are um, deeply and radically defined by our union with you. That as we drive to work and do the dishes and um, navigate conflicts and difficulties with parenting and, and questions about the Bible and all the different things that we wrestle with in our daily life, would you remind us, each of us throughout the week, that we're not doing that alone, that you're with us in those moments, in us, uniting yourself to us. Will that be a source of life to us? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.